Open now, if you will, your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and tonight we'll cover verses 17 through 19. As, as chapter 4 begins, we want to remember that this is the application section of the, of the uh, we begin the application section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If we, if we were to summarize the entirety of the application section, it would go something like this. Those for whom God has done much should live in a manner or a way that is consistent with what God, with what God has done for us. And that seems like it should go without saying, but we have to be reminded of these things. Much has been given to us. We have a responsibility to act consistently with that. Last time we said that, that we could break it down this way. Chapters 1 through 3 were an application section to the letter. Chapters 4 through 6, I'm sorry, chapters 1 through 3 are the doctrinal section to the letter. Chapters 4 through 6 are the application section. But we could put it another way if we wanted to. The first three chapters tell us that God has done a lot for us more than we could ever really delineate. The second three chapters are going to say basically that we should function in love. If we just summarize the whole thing up, that we should function in love. We have seen that in, in this letter so far with regard to outlining the application section, that believers should walk in unity. We just finished that section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. That we should walk in holiness, that we should walk in love, although love is going to pervade all of these that we should walk in the light, and that we should walk in wisdom. And tonight we begin the section that the believers should walk in holiness. That's chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. This is the section that we enter. The first 16 verses, because of the nature of the subject, which was unity in the body of Christ, were primarily, though not exclusively, concerned with corporate life. With, the, with, the, with life within the sphere of the body of Christ. Of course, individuals make up the corporate body of Christ, but when we speak of unity, we're basically speaking of interaction among all of us. Now Paul moves in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, and actually a lot of the rest of this application section, but he's going to move away from an emphasis on the corporate application to more of an emphasis on the individual the individual's application of Bible doctrine, the individual's application of the word of truth to their individual life. Now, as we mentioned last week, and it's so important that I want to mention it again, when we move into this application section, we need to keep this critical issue in mind. And this is so critical. Uh, it, is, it is of supreme importance to your spiritual life and to mine that we remember this. The move to Christian maturity is not simply that we sin less and less. Surely that's a part of it. Surely that's a part of it. But if that's the primary objective that you have in your life, is to sin less and less, then you will almost, you will almost surely not get to where you want to go spiritually. Again, that's a part of it. And the reason I bring it up is because that's going to be a big part of what we study tonight. But sinning less is just one side of the coin. Loving God more is the other side. Paul said that Paul summarized his ministry by saying that, that the, the application of everything that he taught was love. The primary application of all the theology of the Word of God is to love God more and as a result to love one's neighbor more fully. And more genuinely, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, this is not an either-or proposition. This is a both-and proposition. We are to avoid sin. And I never want to have you misunderstand me at all. But that can't be all that your life is about. There needs to be a positive motivation for avoiding the sin or you're not going to make it, at least not the way that you want to make it. This is true in the spiritual life. It's also true in just regular life if we want to try to separate things out, although I don't like to do that. But, but in our own minds, we could say things like, I don't want to go broke. I don't want to get fat. I don't want to, for my marriage to end up in divorce. If I'm playing baseball, I don't want to strike out. If I'm playing football, I don't want to drop the ball. If I'm employed, I don't want to get fired. Now, that's one way to go through life. i got to tell you, it's a pretty sorry way to go through life, though. Just always looking over your shoulder for what's, what's gonna, what negative is going to happen to you. As opposed to something like this. Instead of saying, I, I don't want to go broke, one might think, well, I want to be financially independent. Instead of saying, I don't want to get fat, I want to be healthy. Instead of saying, I don't want to get, instead of thinking every day when you wake up, boy, I hope she doesn't leave me today. I hope, I hope it doesn't have an affair that didn't run off with someone else today. How about thinking, I want to have a good, healthy, God-honoring marriage. You, you see the difference, what I'm talking about? There's, one is just focusing on what not to do. The other one is focusing on what we want to do. Instead of striking out, how about I want to hit a home run instead of dropping the ball? I want to catch the ball. And instead of just worrying about getting fired, how about I want to be a valued employee that honors God with my life? Now listen, that's true in those areas, and it's also true in the spiritual life. There's one thing to say, I don't want to sin. And that's okay. I mean, that's very valid. It's very legitimate. But we also want to be thinking at the same time, I deeply desire to love God with all my heart and my soul and my being. You see, because if I really, truly do deeply desire to love God with everything that I am, I am going to sin less because I love Him more. So again, I'm not saying that we should abandon the... the, the um, the desire to sin less, of course. But it's better. The, the scriptures really present it more in the positive way. Actually, there's a balanced way. But a positive way. Love God. Focus upon Him. In Colossians, make Him the, the first thing in your life. Give Christ the preeminent position. And then everything else is going to fall into place. Here's the encouraging part. If we focus upon God, if we really do this day by day, moment by moment, appreciating what he's done for us, and I mean really appreciating it, not just giving lip service to it, not just talking about it when we're among our friends because we think that's what everybody else wants to hear from us. But I'm talking about in my soul, really appreciating day by day what Christ has done for me. My spiritual life is going to advance. George Mueller, our missionary, once, uh, once equipped... You know, if, if I really focus on thanksgiving of God, I'm going to have a little less time each day to complain about what I don't have. And that's true. As we grow day to day in our love for God, our avoidance of that which offends Him will naturally become more important to us. In our current Christian culture, some, some pastors fail to preach sin at all. They don't, they don't mention it at all, and their, their rationale is that there is so much negativity in the world, and sin is a negative, we just don't need to add anything to it. There are other pastors at the other end of the spectrum, and by the way, I think that's wrong. 
Because if you don't preach sin, you're not preaching the Word of God. Because there are passages, like our passage tonight, that are going to come down real, real hard on sin. And it's going to tell us to avoid that. But there are some people that never mention sin at all because they think it's going to offend people. Yeah, probably would. But there are other people that that's all they talk about. Every time they, they preach, that's all that comes out of their mouth. Don't do this, don't do that, and don't do the other thing. And you know what? I believe both approaches are wrong. I believe they're in error. They are not a balanced approach from what the Word of God tells us. So we need to, we need to look at, for example, the letter to the Ephesians all the way through and not just pick out certain passages. Now, having given that kind of introduction, you can probably tell that we're going to come across a passage tonight that's a pretty strong passage in telling us to avoid sin. That's why I want to keep the perspective here, the overall perspective, not just of Ephesians, not just of the Pauline corpus, the entire body of Paul's material, but of the whole scriptures. There's a dual motivation. The motivation to succeed in the sense that we want to love God more, grow in grace and love God more, and then also avoid that which we should avoid. Now, there's going to be bumps in the road. You know that. That's, that's one of the wrong, that's one of the things that's so dangerous, in my view, about the approach of just strictly telling people, don't do this and don't do that and don't do that. Because you're looking behind yourself the whole time. It's kind of like driving a car, looking in the rearview mirror, seeing what's going to come up on you. If you do that on Houston freeways, what's going to happen to you? You're going to crash. Exactly right. Because you have no vision as to where you're going. Now, if you do like my, my wonderful, sweet bride of 26 years, Cindy, and never look in the rearview mirror, then you're going to have people honking at you all the time when you pull in front of them or something along those lines. There's got to be a balance. Now, she thinks I'm the one that's the bad driver, so if you talk to her, she'd have her own set of stories. I want to say that just to be fair to her. What I'm trying to say is the key to, the, to, the key to sustained spiritual growth is loving God. That's the key to sustained spiritual growth. Now, this section begins in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. This section begins once again with the concept of walking. In, in verse 1 of this, of this chapter, Paul said these words, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we studied that. Now, having finished the exhortation in our first section of unity, now he comes back to this idea of walking again in verse 17 and says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you should, or you walk, no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So he comes back to this idea of walking, which is a Christian way or a biblical way of speaking about our lifestyle, the way that we live our life day by day. Now, this, this section is divided up into two parts, as you might expect, one based upon my introduction as well. One a, is, a, is a negative, and that's what we study tonight, briefly, and that's in verses 17 through 19. Paul is going to mention how the believer should not walk, what we ought to not do. And then, because the, the Bible is a very balanced book, because God wrote it, uh, in verses 20 through, 20 through 32, we're going to see positively how we should walk. So there's how you don't do it, and then how you do do it. Paul begins this by saying, I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord. 
Paul of all people, but certainly anyone who speaks for the Lord, and I, and I want to give my amen to this, every single one of us, if we have half a neuron working, will be the first to tell you that this is not our message. There are some people out there that may be smart enough in philosophy or some sort of uh, area of theology where they can come up with their own system and their own message, and it always falls flat on its face. Sometimes it'll live as long as the individual lives because of a personal charisma, but after they die off 50, 25, 50, 100, 200 years from then, they're scarcely remembered. But the Word of God abides forever because it's God's message. And so Paul is going to make sure that we realize up front that this is not just his personal ethic. This goes way beyond Paul's personal ethic. Now, Paul had, I'm sure, aside from killing Christians, and he thought he was being moral for doing that, but he had a very strict personal ethic, I mean, extremely strict. So what he's telling us here is, when he says, I therefore say, I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, he's saying, this isn't just me saying this. This is the Lord's word that is being spoken through me. So all Paul's saying is, I'm a messenger. That's all, he's, that's all he claims to be. Now, he's a messenger with authority, but he never claims apostolic authority for his own benefit. He claims apostolic authority for the benefit of his listeners. That's why he, sometimes he has to get real strong. I, Paul, I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ, appointed by Jesus Christ. He's not doing that to build himself up. He's doing that so that the listeners would listen and pay attention to him. So he's, when, Paul is essentially saying that when Jesus speaks... We should sit up and take notice. So he's saying now, listen, this isn't me. Jesus is speaking right now, and he's speaking directly to you. Pay attention to what he says. Now look, look at this. And, and Paul says that you walk. He's speaking to believers. Keep that in mind here. He's speaking to Ephesian believers. He says that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Now, I want to ask you something, and it's okay if you want to answer out loud now, but if Paul says here, if he is exhorting people, if he's exhorting the Ephesian believers, listen, don't do that. I don't want you to walk like, like the Gentiles walk. I don't want you to walk like, these, like you did previously. There's an implication there. What, do you know what it might be? Let me tell you. For a second, the implication is that some of these Gentile believers are indeed walking like they ought not to walk. Otherwise, why bother? Paul's not, Paul's not into just theoretical discussions. Maybe, maybe parts of the book of Romans are theological treatises, but not Ephesians, not in this way. The fact that he brings it up at all lets us know that there were people in this church that needed to hear this message. Does that make sense? There were people in the church that are not walking, they're not living in the way that they ought to live. Now, that ought not to come as a shock to us. You want me to shock you? Okay, get ready. Everybody ready for a shock? There are people at our church that aren't living like they ought to live, at least not consistently. Let me shock you even more, because this is what's going to keep you awake for the next 14 minutes, okay? There are times when I don't live like I ought to live either. Hope I don't get fired over that. But that's the truth. And the reason I feel compelled to say that is that there are some in ministry, there are some that are not in ministry, but that sit in the pews that, that, that act like they have never sinned or hadn't sinned in the last two or three months. I have. I sinned this afternoon. Actually, it's sinned this evening, too. But I confessed it before I got up here. But at least I'm being honest about it. I have, I have no false illusions about myself. You see, the people that have the false illusions that are the ones that have the problems. 
these are problems that all of us need to pay attention to. And as soon as we think, I don't have that problem, I could never have that problem, watch out. Because you're about to take a fall. We need to look at this from a realistic standpoint. Now, I am in no way endorsing bad behavior. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I, I, I joke just to kind of keep the whole thing a little bit light. I'm in no way endorsing bad behavior. But we have to realize that there must have been people that had this problem. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have brought it up. Now, the term walk in this passage, that you no longer walk or you walk no longer, is a present infinitive. And this stresses that this is to be a continual action. A continual action. This is not something that just a one-time, temporary, transitory change in behavior. You know, all of us have had that, haven't we? We we get really emotionally charged up about something and say, listen, I'm never going to do that again, or I'm going to do this. Or, or we watch Christy Brinkley and Chuck Norris working out on that exercise thing. We say, I'm going to buy that, and I'm going to lose 40 pounds by Christmas time. And then by Christmas time, you've actually put on two or three pounds, you know, because you forgot all about that emotional thing. Well, that's not this. This is not a one-time transitory um, kind of emotional charge. This is, this is day by day. This is moment by moment. This is step by step. And this is realizing that there are going to be times when we stumble and we're not going to quit and just, just lay on the ground and weep in tears. We're going to realize, okay, I messed up. And then we're going to get up and we're going to move forward with our spiritual life because we love God. That's why. Most of the Ephesian believers were non-Jewish with regard to their race and came from a culture that was markedly different from what would be expected in the body of Christ. And I think that's putting it mildly. Now, when Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk, I, I should say this. The, the, the legalistic Jewish culture of the Pharisees wasn't any better. But most of these people didn't come from that culture. They came from the Gentile culture. So that's why I believe that that is what is stressed here. As a Christian, our lifestyle should be different from either the licentiousness of the Gentile culture or the legalism of the Jewish culture. It ought to be a, a, a culture of love and obedience based upon the motivation of love. As we see in verse 17, the mark of Gentile living was that they functioned in the futility of their minds. The Greek term mataiotes means futility. It can mean emptiness, or it can also mean purposelessness. It's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's used in the Septuagint to translate an extremely important word, and I think, even though you don't speak Hebrew, I think you're going to recognize this word. It's the word hevel. Anybody remember the word hevel? It's, a, it's the word that Solomon uses so much in Ecclesiastes, translated vanity or vapor or mist. It, it means something that's fleeting, something that really has no lasting value at all. And that's what this word futility means. The futility, emptiness, or purposelessness that Paul speaks about begins with thinking. It begins in our mind. Because, you see... Feudal thinking 
is then going to lead to futile activity. Empty thinking doesn't lead to tremendously worthwhile activity. No, whatever you're thinking in your soul, that's what's going to come out when it comes to activity. So futile thinking is going to lead to futile activity. So the basic problem that the Gentiles had and the basic problem that these believers had, these believers had, was futility of their mind, empty thinking. And what other kind of behavior do you expect? If their thinking is empty or futile or is full of matayotes, then there's, there's nothing worthwhile that's going to result from that. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. The, the, the root cause of their futile thinking, the reason that they function with futile thinking is that their understanding has been darkened. Now, their understanding wasn't darkened somewhere along the road in their pagan lifestyle. Their understanding was darkened the moment they were born. Because with regard to what we call the fall, every aspect of man fell at the fall. The emotion, the, internet, the intellect, and the will. And we see that their intellect is, their, or rather their understanding is not completely obliterated. Their understanding has been darkened. There's a, there's a, a difference difference. The fall did not completely obliterate our intellect. We've talked about this before. Our time is not going to allow us to uh, in, in a complete way tonight, but when it comes to the doctrine of total depravity, we say that the image of God in man is effaced. It's not erased. So their understanding is darkened and their minds functioning in futility with that combination, they now also live outside of the life of God. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? And they were born outside of the life of God. The perfect participle stresses here completed past action with continuing results, meaning they were born separated from, the God, from God. They continue up until the time that this was written being separated from God. Now, he's talking about the Gentile unbelievers now. But the point is, he's telling Gentile, formerly Gentile believers, don't act like that. That's not who you are. That may be who you were, but that's not who you are. You know, every time we sin, we act as though we're unbelievers. That doesn't mean we're unbelievers. It doesn't mean we become unbelievers. It doesn't mean that we were just pretending to be believers and we never were that we made a false profession of faith, but at least we're acting like that. And Paul says, just time out. Stop. We can't live this way. This I say, therefore, and affirm to you together with the Lord, the Lord is speaking, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility, in the matayotes of their mind, the emptiness of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that's within them. Now, whose fault is it that they're ignorant? Is it God's fault? No. no. Not at all. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. Because of the hardness of their heart. Now, over in, um, over in Romans, Paul, is, Paul lets us know that 
God is the one that gave, gave these individuals over to a depraved mind. But when we get to verse 19, and they have become calloused and have given themselves over. You see, there's, when we get to this, we, we have to realize, and we, and we think of Pharaoh as the example. When we say, whose fault is it that they're ignorant? Whose fault is it that, they're, that, they are, that their minds and, and souls have become calloused? Well, it's their fault. But think of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a, is a classic example of how the sovereignty of God works in this life. But you see, Pharaoh, if we look at the Old Testament, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He was given every opportunity to say yes to God. And when he said no, 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 then God kept giving him opportunities. And by giving him more opportunities, God ended up hardening his heart. So Paul is not contradicting himself. That's one thing I want to point out here. By saying that, that these people gave themselves over, yes. If we ask whose fault is it that the Gentiles lived in this extremely unpleasant way, it's not God's fault. They're the ones that have yet to take advantage of salvation. That's why they are darkened in their understanding. That's why they remain darkened in their understanding. That's why they remain excluded from the life of God. That's why they remain ignorant. And that's why their hearts remain hardened. And that's why they've become callous. You know... I hope none of us ever get to the point where we become calloused or insensitive when it comes to sin in our life. And you won't become insensitive when it comes to sin in your life if you are focused on loving God. Because the more you love God, the more you're going to want to please Him, and the more it's going to disappoint you when you don't. And you're going to be quick to confess, quick to repent, and quick to get back on the right track. I hate to put us in the category of canine. But, but don't you know sometimes dogs are this way too, at least the best dogs? The best dogs somehow want to please their masters. And when, when they don't please their masters, they get, they're really disappointed because their eyes are on you the whole time. What can I do to please you? And you know, their little tails are just wagging. Would that we be that way before God? Yeah, okay, I messed up. But my focus is on God. What do you want me to do now? Just because I messed up doesn't mean I'm going to go out and bury myself in the backyard or run away from home. No, my focus is going to be on the Lord. And that's what he's asking these people to do. So back to verse 18. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they don't know God. But here the reason is not from a lack of opportunity, but from a volitional choice. They have willfully chosen not to know God. Now that's the Gentile unbelievers, and that's who Paul says, I don't want you to behave like them. I don't want you to do it. Now, now it gets... Um, a little bit salty here, so so strap in just for these next couple of moments. This is the Word of God. Those who belong to this class of people have an insensitivity about them. They have a callousness toward the moral law. And again, I can't help but say this before I move on. There are believers in Ephesus that are acting this way. Before, before I tell you what some of these next couple of words mean as we close, there are believers in Ephesus that are acting this way. And Paul is saying, stop it. Now, in other places, he's going to say, focus on the Lord. But now he's having to say, stop it. How is this expressed? All, all of this, the futility of their mind, the hardness of their heart, the darkening of their understanding. How is this expressed now? Now we get to the, to the, to the sin itself. Having given themselves over to sensuality... For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, this particular word for 
sensuality uh, could also be understood as indecent conduct. It's it's immoral action. It's more than just sexual activity, but that's certainly part of was part of the Gentile um, culture. Alselgia is the is the particular term. It's the performance of blatant acts with no consideration of personal standards or social sanctions. It just everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's it's blatant perversion. It describes the practice of sin with no consideration for what anyone else thinks. It's often used in the scripture of sexual lust or drunkenness, but I don't want you to use it exclusively exclusively of just those terms. It's just blatant overt sin. Josephus used this word to describe a Roman soldier who during the Passover, Josephus was a Jewish historian, lived right after Christ, or wrote right after Christ. But it describes a Roman soldier who during the Passover feast in the temple district to show his, the fact that he despised the Jews, this, this is a Roman soldier who, who publicly exposed himself in the temple precinct in the middle of the Passover festival. Just to make a point, that's what I mean by Blatant acts with no consideration of personal standards or social customs or norms. That's, that's what this means. So it's more than just sensuality. That word has, uh, that, that word actually can be used in a positive sense if it's sensuality within the context of marriage. But this is just blatant indecency. Now you, you see why I've been stressing? Believers are doing this. Blatant indecency. This is the way they used to live for the practice of every kind of, of impurity. Akatharia is a, is a little more common word. That's the word for impurity there. And it refers to a vast array of moral impurity. Again, the moral impurity that has no boundaries. This is bad stuff. And I have to, to, even, to even clean it up just a little bit to keep from offending your all of our sensibilities, sensibilities just too much on a Wednesday night like this. And then finally, if it wasn't bad enough already, the final two words with greediness. Now, this isn't necessarily lust for money, but, but this means that once you get into this pattern, there's never enough. You know, some, some people say, when are we going to reach the moral bottom of this culture? I don't know. I think we've got a long way to go. You would think that you can't go any further. I understand the FCC today. I understand that they removed all... Uh, Restrictions on broadcast language and so forth, at least within certain contexts. They, they began to remove restrictions. Well, good night. There's still a long way you can fall from that. Uh, but but I, I thought that was so interesting, the, the final, with greediness. Not only are these incredibly indecent acts with every kind of moral impurity being practiced, but it's never enough. You know, if that's your lifestyle, it's never going to be enough. You know, when the moral bottom comes is when God takes you out as a believer and says, that's all. We're not putting up with that anymore. I'm not putting up with that anymore. So with greed, there's never enough. Well, to summarize this, and we'll pick it back up in a couple of weeks, what, he, what he's really, us, really doing here is he warns us as believers not to act as though we were not. 
there's a responsibility that we have. We've been given much. And we have a responsibility to act in conjunction with what we've been given, not in conjunction with who we used to be. Well, more on this next time.